<laughs> so we are so honoured to have Dr. David Unwin with us today. Thank you for coming. Um, David is a true pioneer in this area and is incredibly well reputed and a very busy man. So we are very pleased that you could um, make some time for us. You've got a huge amount of passion and knowledge in this area. You're a trailblazer and world renowned for your achievements. David's also a GP in Southport near Liverpool. He is an RCGP expert clinical advisor on diabetes. He's achieved sustainable reversal of type 2 diabetes in over 90 of his patients with a subsequent significant reduction in drug spend on diabetes and chronic disease in his practice. And he will um, talk to us today about rethinking diabetes and what is the evidence. And he is well versed for this because he has published numerous bits of resource and papers into lifestyle changes. He's won awards for his incredible achievements. And he's recently had a paper published in the, in the BMJ Nutrition. So thank you so much, David. I'm going to hand over to you. Right, let me just try and share the screen. There we go. So that looks good. You just need to put it on the play mode. Yeah, hang on, uh, slideshow beginning wonderful that's all i think we're nearly there now there we go and any minute now so you can see my slide now can we camilla yes great right off we go so yes i'm uh, david unwin uh, a gp I've uh, looked after the same population just north of Liverpool since 1986. And uh, for most of that time, uh, I was really depressed with the epidemic of obesity and type two diabetes that my population faced. And I didn't know what to do about it. We've had an eightfold increase in the number of people with type 2 diabetes since I started. So when I began, on, funnily enough, in the very first month I started as a partner, we did an audit of the uh, number of people with type 2 diabetes for the 9,000 population that we looked after, and there were 57. Um, we redid the audit the other day, and there's about 500 now. So this is what all of you are facing. It's another pandemic. There are 4 million people now in the UK uh, with type 2 diabetes. And the massive question is, what can we do about it? Uh, my response for the first 25 years uh, was just to prescribe more and more medication, but it, it didn't really work. And this presentation is a very much a practical guide uh, for those of you who are interested, how you might be able to change your practice round as we have done, um, so that you're seeing uh, people's type two diabetes and obesity uh, improve on a on a regular basis, as I do. So uh, it's a practical guide. Disclosures: nobody pays me ever uh, for what I do, and if they do, I donate it either to the public health collaboration or the local hospice. So I hope I'm independent, although I am biased because I've been on the low carb diet for eight to nine years now. And for me, it works brilliantly. And I suppose that's bound to make me uh, biased. Uh, I'm on Twitter quite a lot. So if any of you are interested, you could follow me on Twitter. So this is what we're going to do in our time together. All questions. Can cutting sugar and starchy carbs prevent or reverse type 2 diabetes? So can it be done? Uh, next question, does it last? Is it worth doing? How is it done? So I'm trying to show you first of all that it can and then hoping you're interested to know how we did it at Norwood Avenue. Another good question, what about older people? And then finally, uh, we should all be interested in evidence. So I'm going to uh, spend a little bit of time sharing with you the evidence from uh, around the world for the approach. So let's make a start. Uh, 
So can it be done? So first of all, let's introduce, this is Roy. He's about 74 and all of you will have a lot of patients like Roy, as I have. I've just said we've had an eight or nine fold increase um, in uh, people who uh, have problems with their weight and also the diabetes. And this is him 18 months ago. And this is him now. Uh, he's lost, I think it's about three stone or more than three stone in weight. He has put his diabetes into drug-free remission. He is uh, off all his antihypertensive medication and his blood pressure is um, normalized now. I think the most important thing for Roy is that he has hope and he's looking after himself and he doesn't actually need a doctor. I think that's wonderful medicine. If we've been effective, they shouldn't need us. And Roy's life now, uh, on the whole, doesn't include uh, coming to the doctors or taking medication. He's so proud of what he's achieved. And let's just look now. So this is his graph of hemoglobin A1c. He came to me one day in July for a 10-minute appointment because his hemoglobin A1c was 51. So I told him he was diabetic. But I hope you're interested, what did I do in that 10-minute appointment to convince him to change? Because look, his haemoglobin A1c has been normal now uh, for about a year and a half. And the most recent result was a few weeks ago and is 38 millimoles per mole. So that's proper uh, reversal of his diabetes in a, such a proud guy. So I hope you're interested as to how we did it. But certainly, can it be done? Yes, it can. So here's one case. So if you can do it once, can you do it more than once? So there we are, drug-free type 2 diabetes remission for one person. Um, Camilla was kind enough to mention a paper that um, we published. This was last October. And uh, in, in our practice now, for anybody that goes low carb, 46% of them will achieve drug-free type 2 diabetes remission. So if you choose to go low carb at Norwood Avenue, there's a 46% chance that I won't be using drugs and I will give you a normal uh, hemoglobin A1c. This is um, a box and whisker for 128 of my patients uh, on a low carb diet for an average of 23 months. So there's the mean, the little red dot, there's the median, 50% percentiles on either side there. That's That'll be 25 and 75, and there's the 95. So this is before on the left and then after. And you can see that we've changed the population completely in terms of where those are lying. And this is um, along with um, average weight loss of over eight kilos. And as you see there, the p-value is actually minute. It's much smaller than that. I think there were about seven noughts before the one. So certainly at Norwood Avenue, we've done it more than once. What about pre-diabetes? Well, our results with them are even better. So even yesterday afternoon, in one clinic, I saw three people. Uh, well, I didn't. I, I rang them up. I rang up three people who I had normalized their hemoglobin A1c. Previously, they'd been pre-diabetic. So at Norwood Avenue, we're actually getting a 93% remission rate for the people with pre-diabetes. That's an amazing hit rate. And if you look here again at the distribution, looking at the mean, the median, and the 25 and 75 percentiles, the population is completely uh, changed. That's before and that's after. So at Norwood Avenue, certainly uh, going low carb, we've got amazing data. This is a little bit more of the data. Um, this was an update last August. 
And if we look at here, this is the haemoglobin A1C when we start and when we finish. And the point I'm making with this is that we are not cherry picking easy cases. I love now the challenges of a haemoglobin A1C over 80. And that's reflected in the average starting haemoglobin A1C, which is 71. So we're not cherry picking easy cases. And the average loss for this group um, was 22 millimoles per mole, or if you deal in percentage, that's 1.9%. That's an absolutely massive uh, drop. You'll also notice significant improvements in the lipid profile here, the triglyceride, uh, the uh, weight loss there, and also blood pressure improves significantly. And finally there, liver function. I'm going to try and bring all of this uh, together for you. So I'm often uh, asked, well, does it last? Is it worth, um, is it worth doing this? So the data I've, I've got at the moment is showing average improvements in haemoglobin A1C of somewhere around 20 millimoles per mole. And we're up to about 29 to 30 months on average for our patients. Uh, but actually, uh, we have people who've been doing it far longer than this. And here is a case. Somebody, one of my patients had a haemoglobin A1C back in 2013 of 96 millimoles per mole. Uh, most of us are uh, reaching for the drugs, something like that. We're beginning to panic. Uh, no, what avenue we don't panic. We look for where has the sugar come from for that patient. And look how well this person has maintained a very good haemoglobin A1C. The latest one is 48. So we've managed this for years with no real deterioration. Uh, I hope now that you're intrigued to find out in an ordinary uh, practice. Mine is an ordinary practice. We've, as I say, got 9,000 patients. We're not a particularly wealthy area. Um, there are five, uh, five partners. We've got two large council estates, so it's, it's not a wealthy area. So how, how are we doing it? The first thing is we need to talk about psychology. And to do that, I'm going to introduce you to uh, Marcia. Uh, this is Marcia, aged 52. She weighs 97 kilos. So she actually, for Norwood Avenue, is absolutely our average uh, person with type 2 diabetes, apart from she's a bit young. That weight is average at Norwood Avenue. Marcia's been on insulin for her diabetes since 2004, uh, injecting 90 units of insulin a day uh, over three injections. And really, Marcia believed, uh, and why shouldn't she, that her diabetes is a chronic deteriorating condition. And the point is she had no hope. So she didn't really think it mattered what she ate, or what she did. And uh, we, over time, just added in drugs for Marcia. Uh, she also had to have painkillers and all sorts of other things because her life was so difficult. But look at Marcia now, a totally different woman and only a year older. So she's one year older there. She is off insulin with wonderful uh, blood sugar control. And the thing is, I gave Marcia hope. She was despairing. She had no idea it was even possible that she could come off insulin. And when she learned she was determined uh, to improve her health, when I gave her hope that it was possible. And if you're finding patients are saying to you, yes, but I couldn't give up bread, I couldn't give up potatoes, then you fail to motivate them. And I've learned this from my wife, Jen, who you're going to meet next. Uh, that motivation is absolutely key to behaviour change. And we need to think far more about behaviour change because it's behaviour and habits that lead to so much of the ill health that we are trying to rectify. So I gave Marcia hope. She's an intelligent woman. And um, I gave her some other things that I'm going to share with you. But the first thing was hope. 
The next thing I gave to Marcia was I explained the physiology of type 2 diabetes in a way that she could understand. Because, so let's give people hope, but then let's give them information, relevant information to the problem, uh, the health problems that they've got. And I, for most of my patients, uh, can explain uh, liver function, triglyceride levels, central obesity and hunger, and type 2 diabetes itself. Marcia's first language is not English, she's from Brazil. Uh, but even with that, she was perfectly able to understand these concepts and how it affected her and take relevant action. So let's see if I can uh, do this for you. Key to this is understanding what insulin does. Um, so I explained to my patients that diabetes does its damage over time because of a high blood sugar. So a high blood sugar over time damages the lining of your arteries. And that is why you have eye problems, kidney problems and circulatory problems because high blood sugars damage your arteries. So it's pretty obvious that you don't want a high blood sugar. And in fact, we are well designed with the hormone insulin and the hormone insulin has a special job and that is to keep blood sugar down. But the interesting question is how does insulin keep your blood sugar down? Well, it pushes it out of the bloodstream and into cells and it pushes it into your muscle cells for energy. But if you eat more Mars bars and biscuits and you need to run around, it also pushes that sugar into liver cells and fat cells, particularly your belly fat cells. In your liver, the cells overwhelmed with sugar are forced to turn it into a particular fat called triglyceride. And in your belly, the sugar is turned into fat as well. And that is why over time, if you have far too much sugar, your liver and your belly begin to fill with fat. And looking now at what happens first of all to the liver. So the liver gradually as you eat those biscuits, as you have those teaspoons of sugar in every tea and coffee and you have your cornflakes, look, the liver is filling with fat. And a fatty liver interferes with the very action of insulin so that your insulin doesn't work as well and it struggles to keep your blood sugar down. But that's not the only place that fat is building up. Fat is also building up in the pancreas gland, the actual gland that produces insulin. And some diabetics, like Marcia, actually struggle to produce enough insulin because the, the fat is filling that pancreas so it doesn't work properly. Now then, that's not the only thing that, um, that insulin does. So if you have a high carb diet, if you have a high sugar diet, you have high levels of insulin. And because of insulin's imperative to get rid of sugar, it stops you from being able to burn fat. So that it is perfectly true that somebody with a real weight problem like Marcia, who weighs nearly 100 kilos, is genuinely hungry, despite the fact that she's eating all day long. And that is because insulin is preventing her from being able to access her fat reserves as food. But the great thing is, if you can become a fat burner, then you can burn your own fat and you're so much less hungry. And if there's one thing that I'm told in every single clinic I ever do, it's patients surprised not to be hungry. They're absolutely amazed. And this is because they've become a fat burner. And I, I noticed earlier on, uh, we were hearing um, about uh, the hybrid engine. We are a hybrid engine. We can burn fat or we can burn uh, sugar. If we can help our patients burn um, fat, 
then obviously they're going to uh, lose weight more easily. So this is my uh, model or my simple model of type 2 diabetes. I see it as a balance. Here's a barrel and we're balancing the sources of sugar and also the tap out of the barrel, the sugar leaving. So the balance of sugar in and sugar out gives you the level of blood glucose and you want a lower level. So let's look at uh, the sources of sugar. Obviously, table sugar and then the starchy carbs all put sugar into the bloodstream. We can also get rid of sugar by exercising more. Uh, I've already touched on the role of insulin. Glycoside does a similar thing. And of course, the new SGL2 inhibitors cause you to wee out sugar. So the, these are all ways to get rid of sugar. But really, is it not simpler to just turn that tap off? Would it not be easier uh, to uh, eat less sugar in the first place? And we can do that in different ways. There isn't low carb isn't the only way to do this. Fasting, Graham was talking about the very low calorie diet, a low carb diet or bariatric surgery works spectacularly for type 2 diabetes. But it works because you've turned off the tap of sugar and patients very quickly understand this. So it's a way of the, um, reducing carbohydrate intake, reduces circulating insulin, you lose weight, you lose liver fat, you reduce the pancreas flat, insulin resistance improves, insulin secretion improves, and this is how you reverse type 2 diabetes. This is a slide that the very famous Roy Taylor and I made together to present in Parliament about two years ago. So it's, it's not just about low carb. How do I start with my patients? We, I wanted this to be a practical thing. So I say to patients that a haemoglobin A1c tells me how sugary your blood has been over the last few months. And questions are more powerful than statements. So I say to the patients, where do you think the sugar comes from in your diet? And I get all sorts of interesting answers. Some of them know uh, I have two sugars in every tea and coffee all through the day. So that's 20 or 32 spoons. And I ask patients, well, you, you know, that sugar is harming you. Are you. Could you stop it if it would improve your health? And they will. Uh, they will. So the very first priority is to cut out table sugar. A uh, challenge, though, is how we help people who say, well, I've all, you know, the, I'm always told, well, I, of course, I, I'm not an idiot, doctor. I mean, I've cut out the table sugar. And, um, of course, a clue is in the NICE guidelines. NICE guidelines for diabetes 1.33 encourage high fiber, low glycemic index sources of carbohydrate. But what are low glycemic index sources of carbohydrate? Here's the clue the starch molecule. Just as Graham told us earlier, the starch molecule is glucose, small glucose molecules holding hands and digestion comes along and breaks it back down into glucose. So starch is soon to be sugar. And this is where I devised my teaspoon of sugar uh, equivalents, where I was looking at how do various carbohydrate foods how might they affect uh, blood glucose in terms that my patients understand, which is teaspoons of table sugar. So uh, a bowl of boiled rice, 150 grams of boiled rice, will affect your blood glucose uh, to a similar extent as 10, tables, 10 teaspoons of sugar. So it's pretty obvious that with your curry, uh, you should have cauliflower rice, not ordinary rice, because rice will put your blood sugar right up. Similarly, with uh, mashed potato, nine teaspoons of sugar, chips, seven teaspoons of sugar, spaghetti, six, uh, even uh, a, a small slice of bread will put up your blood sugar to the same extent as three teaspoons of sugar. And this is the basis, the logical basis for the low carbohydrate diet. If you think of eggs, 
broccoli, almonds, oily fish, mushrooms, cheese, all sorts of delicious foods have a very low glycemic index and don't put up your blood sugar. So these are safe foods. I see type 2 diabetes in a way as carbohydrate intolerance. Is it not true that in a way sugar is a toxic poison for people with type 2 diabetes? And those with the Freestyle Libra that monitor their blood sugar can individualize their diet so successfully they know what puts up their blood sugar. Uh, so here we have the wonderful Right Honourable Matt Hancock. Uh, he met me in Parliament and he gave my sugar infographics to every member of his uh, department. Uh, so there is support for the low carb diet at the very highest uh, level. These infographics, there are now seven or eight of them and they've been translated, I think, into 13 or 14 languages. The latest is Japanese. Uh, Graham already mentioned the PHC. If you just Google sugar, PHC, Unwin, you will uh, have access to all of these. None of them are copyrighted in, as I say, 14 different languages. And please use them to help your patients understand where sugar comes from. So this is the standard A4 uh, diet sheet uh, that I use for my patients and I, we've been using it for years. We're looking at here, where does sugar come from in your diet? It might be naturally occurring as in banana, honey, raisins. There's foods with added sugars, cocoa pops, fizzy pop, biscuits. And then there are foods that digest down into sugar from starch like brown bread, rice, potato. And there's the infographic again. Uh, the diet sheet there. Basically, uh, I suppose you could summarize it. A patient told me this yesterday. It's uh, turn the white stuff green and don't be mean with protein. Turn the white stuff green. So that is uh, replace bread, replace potatoes, replace rice with green veg. And then on top of that, have lots of protein. Don't be mean with the protein, have lots of protein. There's obviously far more detail uh, there. And perhaps Camilla, this any of you can have this. It's, I'd be pleased if you did. And we, or it's also published actually in the BMJ Nutrition. Uh, this um, uh, diet is published in BMJ Nutrition. So you can easily get that. It's open access. Here's a fascinating thing. Some people who go low carb need to take more salt in the diet. Now, I wonder why that is. Um, and it's actually quite fascinating. So we found in the early days uh, that people had a marked diuresis. They were weighing loads uh, for the first couple of weeks of going low carb. And I noticed I did. And one or two patients who had really bad ankle edema were able to come off frusamide. One lady had been on it for 14 years and was able to come off frusamide because her ankles were absolutely fine. So there's a link between going low carb and losing fluid. And also you need more salt or you get muscle cramps. So there's a fascinating link between insulin, sodium and blood pressure. Um, and these two are the references you need for this, but I'll tell you what's on it. So basically, insulin causes, high insulin levels cause your kidneys to hoard salt. So if you're on a high carb diet, it's high insulin, your kidneys are retaining salt and fluid. And when you go low carb, you wee out that salt and uh, also fluid and the blood pressure improves significantly. And I got together with a professor of cardiology in Glasgow and wrote a paper in 2019 on this because we've known about the link between insulin and sodium since 1933. And yet all of us are prescribing diuretics and various tablets when really going low carb is magic. Uh, for blood pressure. And as I say, if you if you Google unwin and hypertension, you'll find the uh, blood pressure I've written with so many references on that. 
I couldn't leave this without some practical words on what about drugs for type 2 diabetes? Uh, what about my patients who are taking other drugs? Is low carb safe? The answer is it depends. You have to think about the drugs they're on in terms of is there a risk of low blood sugar? So obviously if you're on insulin and you go low carb, you need to reduce the insulin. Uh, Glycoside is another one. There might be a risk of um, a low blood sugar. So routinely, if I'm uh, my patients are going low carb, I stop the glycoside. And for the type 2s, I'm looking at reducing the insulin. I nearly always prescribe them a freestyle Libra as well to keep the process safe. The good news is that many of the drugs are actually safe with low carb. So please don't worry about metformin. If they're on metformin, you can go low carb. It's absolutely safe. SGL2 inhibitors, the drugs I told you earlier that cause you to wee out sugar. Really, um, because SGL2 inhibitors are causing you to wee out sugar and you're not eating sugar, there's a risk of low blood glucose. But there is also a risk with the SGL2 inhibitors of a euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis. And all over the country, um, uh, the SGL2 inhibitors are occasionally causing people to be admitted to hospital in uh, euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis. This means their blood sugar is normal. So you can miss that ketoacidosis if you just check the blood sugar. And we've had a case who ended up in intensive care. So I'm very careful now with the SGL2 inhibitors. Again, if you want to know more about this, uh, this particular paper was published in the British Journal of General Practice and is another open access uh, paper. Um, I wanted to talk about primary care. You know, it, we are so privileged, the potential for the, such wonderful medicine, and it's to do with the fact the relationship of, with our patients is ongoing. And this means that we can do better than they can do in secondary care. And I think we're more important. Um, and this ongoing support of people with type 2 diabetes is absolutely key. And if we look at this patient who started off with a haemoglobin A1c of 100, really high, and achieved amazing results. So went from 100 to 48. And then after a while, the results deteriorated. So many clinicians, when this happens, think that diet has failed and start drugs. They're wrong. What has actually happened is carb creep. I said to that patient, I notice your blood's more sugary again. What have you been eating? And they said, oh, I know it's biscuits and mashed potato. And I said, what are you going to do? And they said, I suppose I better give up the biscuits and the mashed potato. And they did. And the second time, the results are even better because they'd learned some useful lessons. And over time, with support and information, we can help our patients not uh, deteriorate, but to get better like this. And the challenge for all of you in your practices is how are you going to support your patients over time uh, to get these great results? What we do is uh, we run group consultations. So since 2013, uh, we see people in groups of 20 to 30. We were forced to do this because there was no money and no staff uh, to deal with the epidemic of diabetes. So we just started filling the waiting room with interested people. And uh, in fact, we went in the very beginning, we, Jen and I went low carb with these people. Uh, what a wonderful experience it's been. Marvellous. We've learned so much from them. And now we have loads of patient experts who are prepared to help us in any way they can. These meetings are now on Zoom and we have a meeting every month on Zoom so that people uh, can come back anytime they want who are suffering with carb creep and get a little top up. So think about how might you support your patients long term and you'll have a load of fun. I, I've loved these groups. And if you look at what we're doing at Norwood Avenue, this is the first of all, the remission rate here for people who choose the low carb approach is going up and up. So in March 2017, we were achieving 31 percent 
remission for those who chose the low carb approach and now we're up to 48 or it's actually 49 percent so it's going up year on year but look at the remission rate for the practice as a whole started very low at four percent we're now up to 18 percent so that's of the number of people who are in remission against all the people at Norwood Avenue uh, with type 2 diabetes and the reason our remission rate is climbing is because of our um, determination really and energy in supporting patients and keeping an eye on them. What about older people? Do you remember? Uh, I think older people so interesting. I didn't used to believe that you could do much with older people. I didn't think they could lose weight. I had the view that they had a slow metabolic rate uh, and therefore there wasn't much you could do. I knew that drugs damaged them, so I was careful uh, not to prescribe too many drugs for them in case they had a hypo. But I didn't really believe that older people could do much in terms of weight or improving diabetes. And I thought, well, they're old anyway, which I now see as shocking and terrible. And here's one of the patients that taught me this. This is Brian. Uh, Brian is 82 years old. And if you look carefully, I'm holding the tape measure where his belly used to be a few years ago. He had a huge belly. And the, the point with Brian is he was a type 2 diabetic on insulin. He was really obese with all the problems that that gave him, high blood pressure, poor mobility. And his diabetes was becoming brittle and making it difficult for him to drive a car. And he asked me, what, what can we do? And we tried the low carb diet and he's never looked back. He's been off insulin and in fact, all his medication. He hasn't taken a tablet for years now. He regularly works out. He's amazing. And he's 82. Uh, there we are. So he's lost 27 kilos or 28% of his body weight. And he's off all those drugs. Something you can do once, you can do more than once. This is, I think, very interesting, and we published this again in BMJ Nutrition. We looked at the weight loss on the left and plotted it against the age of the person who lost the weight. And so we look, this is the, um, the here on the right, the people who are between 65 and 91 years old. And if you look, the old people are losing just as much weight as the young people. So over here are the people who are over 80. And look, they're doing just as well as the young ones. And I think, I love this graph. What a message of hope for older people like me, that older people, we can do just as well as the young ones. And this instills hope. And then they go ahead and do it. And also older people know a lot about cooking and they have the time uh, to um, think about what they're going to eat. Now, the final bit is um, you, I expect now, are wondering, yes, it works for Norwood Avenue, but what's the evidence around the world? So we start off with N equals one. Uh, so pretty typical case. Here is Chris. I've looked after him for over 30 years now. Here he is when he was 40. He weighed nearly 20 stone. He had type 2 diabetes and he was on all the drugs I could think of. Well, here he is 20 years later. He is skipping around. He's joined a gym. He does yoga. He's amazing. And we've had his type 2 diabetes into remission for years now. And he hasn't taken a single tablet for years. I wrote him up in the BMJ in 2015. So there's an N equals 1. And we should look carefully at N equals 1, the anecdote, because what's possible once? is possible twice and three times and in our case we've now got 93 cases like Chris and I refuse to believe that all of you haven't got pace, haven't got people in your practice who could do what Chris has done so there's the n equals one let's they're important they show what is possible well, the Daily Mail, goodness me, there's a source of evidence. Who can, uh, who can deny evidence from the Daily Mail? This two-page spread was in the Daily Mail on Tuesday. The growing army of doctors helping their patients with low carb. So it's not just about me. Here we have an endocrinologist at the bottom saying it's amazing. And 
other GPs. And in fact, there is a Royal College of General Practitioners e-learning module and 2,700 GPs have done the e-learning module. So there are many, there are hundreds and definitely thousands now of GPs and practice nurses doing low carb across the country. Starting tomorrow in the Daily Mail is a four page pullout for a whole week on low carb with diet and featuring patients. Some of them are patients from Norwood Avenue in the Daily Mail tomorrow. And RCT, they're important, aren't they? I like this one. Um, this was GPs down south, but also dietitians, some very famous dietitians. And they concluded that low carb was perfectly uh, possible and it achieved clinically significant results uh, in glycemic control in primary care. The Public Health Collaboration keeps a library of all the RCTs um, comparing low fat diets on the right with low carb diets. The black ones are whether low fat or low carb had the greater improvement in haemoglobin A1c and the blue boxes was the improvement significant. So we look on the low carb side, 15 RCTs uh, showed that low carb won over low fat. 10 RCTs showed a significant improvement in uh, diabetic control. If we look at the low fat diet, two diets uh, showed that the um, low fat diet, two studies, sorry, showed that the low fat diet won against low carb, but it wasn't significant. And no studies, that is no RCTs, have shown a low fat diet does as well as low carb. I think that is startling. And the results, all the RCT are kept there. It's a British charity, the Public Health Collaboration. So that's RCTs. What about epidemiology? Uh, this was published, the PURE study was published in the BMJ very recently. I think it was January. And we're looking here at uh, the association of, on the left, refined carbs increasing refined carbs left to right with total mortality and major cardiovascular events. So you can see here from this massive epidemiology study, I think it was 21 countries and hundreds of thousands of patients, that for every 50 gram increase in refined carbs, total mortality is raising significantly. And for major cardiovascular events, mortality is going up. So this is epidemiology. Now, what is so interesting is we talk a lot about healthy whole grains, but disappointingly in this massive study, increasing whole grains does not deliver significant improvements in total mortality or major cardiovascular events. So the, the, the data on healthy whole grains is ambivalent is ambivalent and this particular study did not show uh, an improvement but then again epidemiology is in my opinion it shows just associations it does not show causation so be careful with epidemiology um, this is a uh, uh, further detail from this that six slices of white bread per day could increase overall mortality by five percent that was a conclusion from this particular study. But it, it was, as epidemiology goes, it was quite a good one. Um, also, what about lipids? Some of you are bound to be worrying about the extra fats they're having. Now, what's so interesting in our study, we found improvements, significant improvements in total cholesterol. HDL cholesterol went up, the protective cholesterol. Cholesterol ratios improved significantly. And triglycerides, from what I told you already, improved by about a third. So in our practice, the improvements with low carb on lipid profiles are significant. And here is a wonderful meta-analysis, a huge meta-analysis of all the RCTs looking at uh, low carb diets and um, what happened to the uh, lipid profiles. 
this was done in Liverpool University a couple of years ago. The conclusions are large randomized controlled trials of at least six months of duration with carbohydrate restriction appear superior, not as good, but better in improving lipid markers where compared with low fat diets. So clearly, you know, for the first 25 years of my practice, I tried and tried with low fat diets and I failed and failed. And so much evidence is coming out now to question really the whole um, uh, world of low fat diets. In my practice, they didn't work. I couldn't make them work. And now week after week, I am making low carb work and we've done it for nine years now. Cost savings. So for years now, my practice spends the least of all of the neighborhood practices on drugs for type 2 diabetes. We actually spend £50,000 per year, every year, less than our neighbours on drugs for diabetes because we simply don't need them. Um, this is openprescribing.net, a wonderful resource. It was set up by Ben Goldacre and all of you can check on your prescribing for type 2 diabetes so easily. So I didn't collect this data, um, but month after month, my practice is by far the cheapest. So our savings there last year was 50,897. And if every GP in the country prescribed as Norwood Avenue prescribes, we would save 277 million pounds. Drugs will never ever be the answer to the epidemic of obesity and type two diabetes. They are not the answer to the problem that we face because the cause of diabetes is not to do with drugs. We need to think about the cause. Why are our patients diabetic? This epidemic has come about in the last 30 years, so it can't be genetic, it's environmental. And I believe that diabetes is because of what we eat. And for that reason, reversing diabetes and getting rid of it is not to do with medication. It's to do with improving diet. Quickly on to guidelines. I know some of you are worried about guidelines. So nice, here we are, 1.33. You're perfectly within the nice guidelines to encourage high fiber, low glycemic index sources of carbohydrate. Green veg is high fiber, low carbohydrate. Cornflakes are not. If we look in Canada, they've just changed their guidelines now. Um, and they are now saying, that low carbohydrate diets may be perfectly effective for weight loss and improved glycemic control. They're even saying that very low carbohydrate diets may be superior uh, for low glycemic control. So that's Canada, uh, the USA here. They very recently, uh, in 2020, they looked at the evidence for all kinds of diet and they, they concluded Reducing overall carbohydrate intake for individuals with diabetes has demonstrated the most evidence for improving glycemia. Not some evidence or a little bit of evidence, but the most evidence. So that for in the USA now, uh, low carb going strong and Scotland uh, also has said a very similar thing. So here we are, you've got to the end. Well done. I don't know how the time is. I hope we're within time. So some conclusions. Hope is central to behavior change. Hope and also, I think, feedback. I'm always printing graphs off. Uh, you've seen some of my graphs. You'll see them on Twitter, graph of the week. Patients love getting feedback, positive feedback on what they do. So think about how you change behavior. For most patients, the cause of type 2 diabetes is diet. For 95% of all of them, it's what they've eaten. It's not stress or lack of exercise or the drugs you've given them. It's what they've eaten. That's what I believe. Type 2 diabetes remission. What a beacon of hope. People love it. It's sweeping the world. It can be achieved in different ways. It's not all about low carb. Bariatric surgery works great. Uh, the direct study are getting wonderful uh, results. And I suppose it's a matter of personal choice. And... and uh, what's most realistic for your patients. 
but certainly improving type 2 diabetes with a low-carb approach. It can improve weight, blood pressure, lipid profiles, liver function, but most importantly, self-esteem. And for me, it's self-esteem of my patients. Every clinic I'm seeing, imagine those three people I rang up yesterday to tell them, you know, wow, you've done it. And then we do a thing called happy post. So we send out, I think, 10 graphs we post out to people uh, to say, here's the good news. Put it on the fridge. Here's your weight loss. Here's your liver function. Here's your hemoglobin A1C. Um, the staff love this because it's cheerful work. And the final thing is the self-esteem of the doctors. I so nearly retired uh, age 55. I wasn't enjoying medicine. I'm 62 now. I'm loving being a GP. It's the brilliant, brilliant job. Uh, I was ineffective and disillusioned age 55. And I hope you can see I'm full of energy now. Um, and Oh, that's just a quick slide to say the e-learning module for you uh, that I wrote for the Royal College. And then finally, uh, those are some of the peer-reviewed uh, papers I've written. And wow, thank you. We got to the end. There we are. Done. That was wonderful, David. I could hear <laughs> for ages. It is such a compelling story with wonderful results. And I think after seeing that, I sort of defy any GP to not have a really hard think about sort of offering that in their practice because you can't dispute the results that you've um, achieved. So thank, thank you. And I think it's really important because you've got sort of the sort of evidence and the um, numbers. And I think that's really important because that's what a lot of people want to sort of see. They want to see the evidence from it. So I know it takes a lot of work publishing things and getting through all the hoops. So, so well done. Can I just say a word on that? I, you know, I've, I'm so passionate now about the power of primary care. And I didn't think we were important for a long time, but we are. And we're powerful because of the data that we have. Data is the new oil. Data is gold. And if you can be bothered to collect data for what you do and show evidence, we become powerful. And uh, certainly if you do a new thing or you do anything interesting, audit. I used to yawn, audit, and think, oh, go away. I'm busy and exhausted. But actually audit, we could become so powerful that the more of us that collect data, it makes it very difficult for people to tell us we're doing a wrong thing. I saw there, somebody was asking about the e-learning module. Camilla, I'm happy for you to share my slides with anybody. I don't know whether you can do that. She's, somebody's asked if we could put the e-learning module up, but can you just share the, all the slides with anybody that wants them? Can you do that? Absolutely. So we will share all the slides. It will be made Great. the podcast. It's recorded so people can, well, they will have to purchase that unless they're a Wessex GP Education Trust but the podcast is free to anyone. So please Great. share widely. I think there was a question also, David, is there resources for patients? And I know that there are a lot online and videos that you've done, but I don't know if there's a resource hot that patients can tap into. Yes, um, so patients can access the Public Health Collaboration. It's a British charity and all of the evidence and teaspoons of sugar um, are all there. Um, I was thinking about, also, there is the, I like diet doctor. I think that's good, lovely recipes, very good quality stuff. Um, I love, I actually learned, embarrassingly, I learned low carb from the low carb forum. I think there are 60,000 people online on the low carb forum of diabetes.co.uk. And those are wonderful people who spent a long time and very patient teaching me about low carb. That's another resource. Uh, well, I, think, I, go on. I think I think we will I'll showcase the website as well that Neil Jones and our surgery oh please do I love that we have your diet advice sheet embedded in there we've got links to all the different resources and websites so I will showcase that at the end yes. I think there were some questions David about if patients come in with a very high offset HbA1c in sort of 80s 90s 100s do you instigate medication at the same time as changing low carb if that's their sort of yes. presenting? Can you talk a bit about that? I'd love to. No, I don't start drugs. 
What I do, so this is such an important point. I'm seeing them every two weeks and I'm monitoring their progress. If they are, if they are losing weight uh, and if they look well, and if the blood sugars are improving, they're safe. But there are one or two patterns to look out for. If people lose weight and their hemoglobin A1C isn't improving, this is a really rare thing. And you'll only see it a couple of times. And it may be they have a carcinoma pancreas or another malignancy. So somebody losing weight with um, a high blood sugar, that's odd. Or they may be type 1 diabetic. But the great majority are very heavy people who actually come in a week later and say, I feel a lot better. I'm more alert. I'm not hungry. And if they feel well and they lose weight and the blood sugars are improving, the highest one I had was 144, a hemoglobin A1C of 144. And no, I don't panic, but I do monitor carefully. And that person dropped it down to 60. And the question is, the fundamental question is, why is that blood sugar so high? And for the case of 144, the answer was there. She was having three puddings. I was called out as an emergency to a nursing home. She had three bowls of rice pudding, two packets of biscuits and uh, Doritos all on the bed. <laughs> I said, take the puddings. The reason she had a high blood sugar, we, why we must become scientists. We must ask, where has the sugar come from? And if the patient is not having much sugar, then you have to think, well, that's odd. Maybe there's something else going on. So no, I don't panic. Um, I don't give drugs. Um, I do occasionally. Uh, I think I've prescribed medication now. In nine years, I think I've started. I start drugs for diabetes about twice a year. Wow, that's um. That's but that's why I'm saving money. But I, I, I'm fascinated, absolutely fascinated by challenges, by people who don't seem to do well. And so often when I dig down, there was a patient, for instance, whose hemoglobin A1C was 90. And he told me it was low carb, but it was having four pairs a day. And when we used a freestyle Libra, I said, why? What's that leap in your blood sugar? And he was eating loads of pears and bananas. And he that anyway, there we are. Let's get on more questions. More mm -hmm. questions. And, I, and, I, and I think. Um, Talking about the Freestyle Libra, someone was saying about accessing it, accessing it in secondary care because we're not really meant to prescribe it. I don't know if you have any. Oh, I've got something to say on that. Listen, we're doctors first and I am going to do for my patients the right thing, whatever, whatever somebody tells me. And I believe that for, let's say, type 2 diabetics um, on insulin, why are they not entitled to a freestyle Libra? I don't care what the CCG says. I do not care. And I've been prescribing the freestyle Libra for people in danger for two years. And the CCG didn't touch me because I'm saving so much money. How dare they? I'm, those people need the feedback and a freestyle Libra keeps them safe. Now, the cheap way to do it is they can download the app on their phone, a free app, the Freestyle Libra app, and you can negotiate with the patient to just give them maybe six weeks of the Freestyle Libra. So they're not having it forever. So it's not a recurring. I just want them to learn. I want to give them the chance to learn. So I set it up as a contract. I'll, I'll prescribe this for six weeks, but it's not permanent. And this is how, you know, I've got patients, they learned it was cornflakes, it was pears. Somebody discovered it was sweet corn recently and beetroot. It, it's wonderful. And in any case, the world will soon change. We'll all have freestyle Libras. So yes, download the app so you don't need the uh, reader and just prescribe the sensor because it is expensive for uh, just a few weeks. Thank you. And I think the sensors cost, the sensors usually come in a for two weeks and they're usually they between 40 and 50 pounds. Yes, yes. And you can actually, Freestyle Libra is offering free sensors to anyone that has never had a sensor before that is type two diabetic. And yes. A couple of questions. So that is an interesting thing to explore and we can put a link to that at the end of the, the webinar. Great idea. There was another question about root veg. Someone said, 
um, you know, is all root veg high in carb, e.g. beetroots, parsnips, sweet potatoes, carrots. These are good rainbow colours, but question mark. Yes. Right. So the first thing is it depends. There's a spectrum, isn't there, of sugariness of foods. And against that is how how dangerous is sugar for the person in front of you? So some people will achieve good results by cutting out bread and breakfast cereals and sugar in tea and coffee. For others, the actual problem is biscuits or cake or snacks. So you might, you might, you might do all right by just going lower carb, because if you weigh 100 kilos, in my experience, you're on hundreds of grams. You're on 400 grams of carbs a day, 300. So coming down, for some people, coming down to 200 uh, is amazing. But uh, for people with a high hemoglobin A1C, most of the patients over the years, because they, they like to lose weight, start cutting out the starchy carbs. Celeriac is a good one, actually. Celeriac mash, celeriac chips. I love celeriac. You can make remoulade with it, a thing a bit like coleslaw, is a lower glycemic index uh, root vegetable. But I personally, I haven't eaten a potato in a very long time. Um, sweet potato is slightly better, but I'm not very, I, uh, I don't personally uh, eat a lot of root veg. Some raw, raw carrot is better than cooked. Um, so it depends on the patient. If they, if they can achieve the result they want and have smaller portions or less often, fair enough. Um, but over time, most of my patients go quite low carb. I, I, I agree. And, and I think it is about sort of patients experimenting and having yes. staple foods in their cupboard and learning what they can cook with and different recipes and doing food. Yes. And there is a lot of information again online about that. So some, someone has asked, well, is it better to have two spoons of sugar than a slice of bread, for example? No, if, if, if you remember, I said my first priority is to get rid of table sugar. And uh, table sugar, of course, is a disaccharide. It's two sugars in one. One of them is glucose, but the other one is fructose. And fructose has all sorts of dangers, particularly to the liver, particularly involving gout, and uh, I think that you're going to speak to Jen next. I think table sugar um, is probably addictive in various ways. So for me, and it's in all the nasty snacks. So for me, I get rid of table sugar first if I have to prioritize and, um, and then go on to other starchy things second because of the fructose content. Thank you. Um, and... And, and have you got any advice about alcohol? Because that's obviously a big thing. Yes, I have. So alcohol is also a spectrum of sugariness. So very sugary is that horrible alcopop things and cider and beer. And of course, the reason you have a beer belly, as my son Robert calls it, he says beer is liquid toast and it's very carby. And that's why you get a big belly. Carbs give you a big belly. So... Uh, no, you can't, um, you, you shouldn't be having beer, but other things are much less sugary. So dry white wine, dry red wine, much less sugary. And of course, shorts like whiskey or brandy, I'm not saying have all of these things, moderation. But yes, I do drink alcohol, not that often. I have red wine for a celebration. Champagne is low carb. Fantastic. So we'll all live on champagne. Yes. Like that advice. <laughs> so the, the last question, David, because I know we're running out of time. Yes. Is um, really about if we're reducing carbohydrates in the diet, we're often increasing healthy fats in the diet instead. Yes. People with familial hypercholesterolemia or high cholesterol at the outset. And I know it's a huge question, but I wondered if you could touch on that. Well, first of all, they're very rare. So in my practice, you only find a, a very few of those. I tend to uh, deal with those in an individual way. I'm very interested in uh, calcium scoring of coronary arteries, because if your calcium store is, is zero, maybe you don't need to worry. Uh, far more common are the hyper-responders. So far more common actually than the familial ones are people who are slim, very active, Jen is a hyper responder and I think her cholesterol is 11. 
something like that, we had a coronary artery score is zero. So Jen has the coronary arteries of a teenager and she eats loads of fat. I want to finish with a few resources because there were lots of unanswered questions about resources and I'll do it so quickly. So uh, uh, a book, a book. Here's the first one. Can you see that? That is one of the Chaldeses and I wrote these, write these uh, books, uh, cookery books. I write them for free and every one of them gives a donation to the PHC. So those are worth doing. Uh, for people without much money, I like the Paleo Canteen, low carb on a budget for your patients without much money. And there was a question about sports people and exercise and endurance. And there's a book here by Jeff Folek and Stephen Finney, The Art and Science of Low Carb Performance, because increasingly um, our sports people, endurance sports people are using low carb. So those are all quick resources for people who are wondering where to look up. And now I need to shut up because you've got somebody <laughs> coming. And Jen is in the queue probably somewhere. She absolutely is. Thank you, David. That's all right. Bye from me. With the resources, we're going to show you the website that has all those books that you've mentioned in the right. resource um, part. So thank you, David. 